1: What kind of a show
0: are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now, well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation.
1: From Chicago, this is Film Spotting.
0: I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. This is going to
1: be the best summer ever. Amore. We'll ride down every road see the whole world together it'll be amazing
0: i would say that sounds like hot vac summer brought to you by disney and pixar adam but my kids have told me i'm not allowed to use that phrase
1: i think that's wise actually that was pixar's luca which is new to disney plus this weekend it's a mermaid tale
0: of sorts set in the italian riviera merman adam Plus, we wrap up our seven from 76 Best Year Ever series with some awards. Our favorite performances, scenes, and more from the great movie year 1976. That and more ahead on Film Spotting.
1: Welcome to Film Spotting. I'm going to make the terrible joke here, Josh, and say there must be something in the water. What is happening with all the mermaid stuff? Last week, We talked about Christian Petzold's water nymph parable, Undina This week, it's Pixar's
0: Luca. I'm blaming you. (laughs) You know what would be a great idea, Adam? If if someone did like a a related top five to this phenomenon. I mean, Hmm. maybe someone else will take care of that. Okay.
1: Yeah. We'll take that under advisement. We will get to a review of Luca later in the show. First, though... We're going to give out some awards. We finished up our 7 from 76 Best Year Ever series last week with Michael Schultz's cult comedy Car Wash. This week, we're going to name our favorite performances, scenes, films, and more. And maybe we should provide a little bit of background here, Josh, on the Best Year Ever series. We revisit, or in some cases, finally catch up with movies that help define great movie years. It's something we started a couple years back with the 20th anniversary of 1999. We did our 9 from 99 then, talked about Fight Club, Being John Malkovich, Magnolia, Eyes Wide Shut, Sixth Sense was in there. We had so much fun with that. We followed it up with 8 from 84, Ghostbusters, Gremlins, This is Spinal Tap, Amadeus, and others, part of that series. And this year, hopefully, you can see the pattern. It's 7 from 76. And Josh, we started it with Four of the movies that were nominated for Best Picture at the 1977 Oscars, those were All the President's Men, Taxi Driver, Network, and the eventual winner, Rocky. Those were all revisits for us, much to your chagrin with Rocky, Josh. Mm. That is, once you realize you had actually seen Network before, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, you think I'd remember that, but, you know, it's just those years of Network being part of Oscar montages that Uh I thought, maybe I've never actually seen this whole thing. I did. Yeah, I did. So I saw it again.
1: After those Best Picture nominees, there was Chantel Ackerman's News from Home, a blind spot for both of us. Barbara Kopple's Harlan County, USA, a blind spot, an actual blind spot for you, Josh. And finally, as we mentioned, Car Wash. It was a fun series and a short one. It's June. We're already done. Didn't spread this out over the course of the year. Maybe we'll get into the habit of that. And when we close out, remind me, Josh, that I can already give you a preview of six from 60-what- Mm. I do have thoughts. I started looking ahead, but first let's look back. You put out last week, a call for listeners to name these awards. It wouldn't be a film spotting awards ceremony. If there wasn't a name, we have to hand out some kind of prize. And we of course got some great suggestions, starting with Dylan Dom in Blair, Nebraska.
0: He went with the golden Italian stallions, of course, referencing Rocky there, another Rocky one here, the mighty mix. Another suggestion from Dylan, The Mad Prophets. That's a network reference, as is The Corporate Cosmologies. (laughs) A bit of a deep cut there, Dylan. Two more (laughs) suggestions. He had The Follow the Monies, reference to All the President's Men, and The Which Side Are You Ons, a reference to Harlan County. I'm going to say, Adam, You know, I I like some of those, but I just can't Mm -hmm. abide a Rocky reference as, (laughs) as the name of these awards. Okay. I won't do that to you.
1: I think the follow the monies and the which side are you ons are very clever, kind of a mouthful. I think that Josh Ashenmiller in LA has our answer. He says, How about the flower pots, named after the system Bob Woodward uses to communicate with an anonymous source and all the president's men, rearranging the flower pot on his balcony? Plus, a flower pot would be a nice little trophy
0: to take home and use. See, it's practical. Ah, yeah, maybe that does put it over the top. It's practical, nothing to do with Rocky. I like it.
1: Yeah, and I'm sure Robert Redford and Patty Chayefsky, rest in peace, and everyone else who populated our 7 from 76 series will be eagerly anticipating the delivery of their flower pot. Let's find out who has a shot at getting that coveted prize. We're going to start with our award for best supporting performance, and this is as good a place as any to mention the passing of the great Ned Beatty. 83 years old, Oscar nominated for his memorable single scene performance in Network, and it is that good. He also conveniently shows up in All the President's Men, maybe not quite as memorably. This performance in Network was his only Oscar nomination, Josh.
0: Mark Harris weighed in on his career. He's so great at memorializing screen legends when they pass. And here's what he wrote. To me, Ned Beatty is what a career in screen acting is all about. I can't think of one thing he was in that he didn't make better. You know the film credits, but he was also a TV legend. Homicide, Life on the Street, Friendly Fire, The Marcus Nelson Murders, One of the Greats, R.I.P. Some of those film credits include his
1: debut was Deliverance. He was also in Robert Altman's Nashville in 76. There was Network, All the President's Men, and Elaine May's Mikey and Nikki. That was part of our Elaine May Marathon a few years back. He was, of course, also Lex Luthor's henchman, Otis, yes. in 1978, Superman and its sequel. And maybe gave one of the best vocal performances ever in an animated movie as Lotso in Toy Story 3.
0: Oh, Lotso Huggin' Bear. I mean, that might be my favorite Beatty performance, (laughs) the the cuddly villain there. Mm -hmm. I love the, sort of that suspicious drawl he gives as Lotso. So great. But even something, you mentioned his debut in Deliverance, Adam. I think when we talked about that film, um, we spent some time, of course, the notorious scene where he's assaulted. But there are so many layers to that, largely because of what Beatty does with that character in the other scenes in the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, it's he's he's coming when he's going on this trip. He kind of takes what he wants of the land and looks down on the people they meet. So it's all of those complications come into play in in that notorious scene that he's, mm-hmm. you know, often remembered for
1: his last film credit was 2013. He was, as we said, Oscar nominated. There were actually seven nominees from our series Who were up for the award, either Best Supporting Actor or Best Supporting Actress. Jason Robards eventually won for All the President's Men. Jane Alexander also nominated for All the President's Men. Beatrice Strait won for Network, joining Ned Beatty there with a nomination. Then we had two from Rocky, Burgess Meredith and Burt Young, and also Jodie Foster from Taxi Driver. Incidentally, the other three nominees that year, Lawrence Olivier for Marathon Man, Lee Grant, Voyage of the Damned, and Piper Laurie, who could forget Piper Laurie, Mrs. White, and Brian De Palma's Carrie. Now, Josh, I'm going to guess that your winner of the Flower Pot for Best Supporting Performance comes from one of those seven that was nominated. Though, two names I'll throw out, both very good in the series finale, Bill Duke and Ivan Dixon, my two favorite performances in Michael Schultz's Car Wash. So I'll throw them into the mix where did you go with your prize?
0: Yeah, definitely consider those two, especially Bill Duke. I think, you know, as Abdullah, he was he was kind of the movie's wet blanket for much of the running time. But then he also becomes its most moving character in a way with that mm-hmm. final scene we talked about where he uh, he laments having to work at this clown show, in his words. So... Definitely thought about Bill Duke. Also thought about Carl Weathers as Apollo Creed in Rocky. Here, I'm going to give Rocky some early love here. (laughs) Adam, he's just so cocky, so crafty. And as I talked about, I love how he delivers essentially the movie's thesis speech, you know, about American sentimentality. So Carl Weathers uh, was a nominee for me. And of course, Ned Beatty the corporate cosmology speech. (laughs) I mean, if you're going to get one scene and it's that rich and that meaty and you deliver, um, you deserve to, to get the Oscar nod, but my winner, and even as I'm saying this, Adam, and you were running through those other nominees Mm -hmm. and I know that she was not only a nominee, but one. but I think the Academy considered her in a lead role, and I have her here as my supporting winner. That's Faye Dunaway for Network. Um, and I guess it's, you know, I think of Network as such, a, as such an ensemble piece as really a handful of these 76 movies were that it didn't strike me to check up on that. So... <laughs> We don't play by Academy rules here, Adam. I'm going with Faye Dunaway in that work. Um, She was the highlight for me in this movie. The rediscovery, in a sense, just how she devours all these scenes she's in. Uh, She's so driven. She's so brazen. She's so unscrupulous. I talked about her maybe being a prototype for the Michael Douglas sleazy business types we'd get in the 80s. She seems like a model for him. and. I just love the way she even works her eyebrows throughout the movie where she starts to kind of salivate over something she knows will get ratings and her eyebrows will just raise higher and higher the more excited she gets. I think one point it's where uh, her boss, Robert Duvall, talks about how manifestly irresponsible the things they're doing are, and instead of her being chagrined by that, she's more excited by that.
1: Did you see the overnights on the network news? It has an eight in New York, a nine in LA, and a twenty-seven share in both cities. Last night Howard Beale went on the air and yelled bullshit for two minutes, and I can tell you right now that tonight's show will get a 30 share at least. I think we've lucked into something. Oh, for God's sakes, Diana, are you suggesting we put that lunatic back on the air yelling bullshit Yes, I think we should put Beale back on the air tonight and keep him on. Did you see the news this morning? Did you see the Times?
0: So that's my um, winner for the sporting category. Maybe she should have been a lead. I don't know. It's it's on the line. Well, it's on the line. Yeah, I
1: suppose it's on the line. I'll give you that, and far be it for me to quibble with anybody giving an award to Faye Dunaway. I notoriously am a Faye Dunaway stan here on film spotting, Do your kids forbid you from using that word too, Josh? Uh,
0: I I still, I don't even know how it works,
1: so I don't think it's a problem. Well, I love Faye Dunaway and I love her in network, but I did, like the Academy, consider her a lead performer. My winner here for Best sporting Performer is so easy. I did not have to spend any time at all deliberating. Sometimes the Academy actually gets it right. Most of the time, it seems like they get it wrong. Sometimes they get it right, and they got it right with Jason Robards as Ben Bradley in All the President's Men. If we were to devote just a top five list to Ben Bradley moments, that is a list I would sink my teeth into. And how many minutes would you say he takes up in terms of screen time? in All the President's Men.
0: Good question. Maybe. Yeah, that's another ensemble, right? It's uh, Maybe it we'll get to this when we talk about Redford and Hoffman. Would you almost consider him a, a co-lead? He's close, but yeah, maybe there's yeah, not that but- many screen minutes. They just actually resonate.
1: With Ben Bradley, I think that Robards is on screen maybe all total no more than seven to 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I could be off by a little bit, but it's obviously a much smaller role than Redford and Hoffman. And yet... I would sink my teeth into it, but I would also struggle. I would certainly cheat Josh because I would have so many good candidates for that top five list. And it wouldn't be just picking line readings, though I think almost everything he says in that movie is gold. It would be... Glances, I'd have to consider. I'd have to consider grimaces. I'd have to consider gestures. That's how good I think that performance is. And of course, when I saw The President's Men for the first time, I had no sense of who Ben Bradley was as a historical figure. Obviously, he's not that well known. Maybe journalism buffs or some history buffs will know politics. Buffs will know Ben Bradley as the longtime editor of The Washington Post. My kids didn't know who he was watching it, but everything Robards was clearly trying to embody that sense of admiration mixed with a little bit of fear, <laughs> that fear and respect that everybody in the newsroom clearly had for him, that gravitas that he carried. It's all there so subtly just by Robard's presence, his demeanor, his choice of words, how quietly he often speaks. And part of that is also the way he listens. He's not a guy who rushes to judgment. He's not trying to step on anyone's toes. He's going to let you say what you got to say, and then he's going to take you down with a quip, or he's going to just take you down with a look because he basically let you hang yourself in that moment.
0: There's a source over General Accounting that tells us that there's a whole rat's nest of illegal shit going on over creep. Like what? like a slush fund. Hundreds of thousands of dollars of unaccounted for cash. Hundreds of thousands of dollars. Any comment from Creep? Yeah, it's unavailable for comment. They're not talking. But what else besides the money? Where's the goddamn story?
1: I really do just love every moment Jason Robards is on screen and all the president's men.
0: Yeah, that is that's all good stuff that that he's using tools he's using, but it it is for me the line readings. It's one of those performances where every word works both functionally but also entertainingly and, and yes. character wise too yes so it's like you know you you get some performances where and this isn't the actor's fault but they're fed lines for exposition or just setup or just context mm-hmm. and you have a feeling here like all that falls to the wayside as you said gold everything everything he says is precious
1: It really is Now before we get to best lead performance and we see what shenanigans Josh is up to with his <laughs> nominees, we're gonna sneak in best performance we'd forgotten. Was it one of the ones that we have named so far, Josh, or maybe one of the lead performance contenders?
0: Well, we've already established my memory of network was fuzzy. So is fuzzy. So I I have to, I have to confess Ned Beatty. I forgot he was in it. And I don't know how, again, such an indelible scene, but that was, that kind of made the performance all the better where it was that surprise. Like, Oh, that's right. He's in it. And then, Oh, this mm-hmm. is what he's doing in it. So thought about him again, but really, Adam, I'm going to give more love to Rocky here. And the performance I'd forgotten was Frank Stallone as the corner do walk. How dare you in Rocky, which if I think I could, I would cut your mic, <laughs> which I think we've learned. Didn't we get an email from someone who lived in, in Philly in the seventies and said, yeah, these guys were on the corners. So, <sighs> okay. um, so that you know, I take if it all back.
1: Take this seriously, Josh, then <laughs> we'll just move on. Did you
0: remember? Did you remember Frank Stallone in Rocky? I
1: I did not and okay. after the opening scene I forgot
0: it. <laughs> That's your pick. Huh? That's my pick.
1: Yeah. That's your pick. I'm okay. just tossing well,
0: I'm tossing the rocky flowers all over the place trying to make up.
1: Uh-huh. Another another backhanded compliment there for Rocky. That's the best you could do. For me it's got to be Jodie Foster in Taxi Driver. Mm. And I had just reckoned with Taxi Driver. I think we said it was 10 years ago on its 35th anniversary. Dana Stevens joining me for that review. And I'm sure I was taken by surprise by how good she was then. But watching it this time, you know, you go in knowing you're going to see Robert De Niro. You know you're going to get some Sybil Shepherd. I'm anticipating the Martin Scorsese cameo. And actually, we did. Recognize that there are two, and there are only one, though, where he actually speaks, where he's the guy in the back seat of the cab, and that whole charade that he pulls off with De Niro. But I wasn't really prepared for just how formidable a presence Jodie Foster is in Taxi Driver. It's such obviously a mature performance, but she manages to still somehow integrate into the performance a sense of that immaturity. And some childlike naivete that, of course, is just crossed with this hardened New York City prostitute attitude. She's clearly involved in a whole host of things that no one her age should be involved in. And yet it never feels like via Foster's performance that she is putting on any kind of airs that she is actually performing, that she's trying to be like some of the women that she probably runs around with or that Sport, Harvey Keitel's character, her pimp, is also involved with. She somehow has again that kind of childlike demeanor because she is a child but mixed with sort of a stature that really does belie her age and expresses a sort of raw confidence too.
0: Why do you want me to go back to my parents? I mean they hate me. Why do you think I split in the first place? There ain't nothing there. Yeah, but you can't live like this. It's a hell. A Girls should live at home.
1: Didn't you ever hear of women's
0: lib? What do you mean women's lib? You're a young girl. You should be at home now. You should be dressed up. You should be going out with boys. You should be going to school. You know, that kind of stuff. God, are you square? Hey, I'm not square. You're the one that's square. Well, and doing all that opposite De Niro, you know, who is yeah. pretty early in his career, but still, as as I'm sure we'll get to, just giving this towering performance that's full of aggression. And I know you see a, a quote unquote sweeter side of Travis in the scenes with her, but still, um, you know, being a kid, working with someone reaching the heights of their talents had to be, you know, maybe you could say it makes it easier, but it had to be challenging too for her.
1: Yeah. Well, that brings us then to best lead performance. Robert De Niro, of course, nominated for Taxi Driver. Five other performers from our series nominated in 1976. You had the winner for Best Actor, Peter Finch, posthumously for Network. Faye Dunaway for Network. William Holden for Network. All leads, Josh. Sorry, they're all leads. It says it right here in my notes. Yeah,
0: but see, that kind of had... speaks to my point. Like, oh, yeah, there are three leads in the movie? I know.
1: Okay. Yeah. Sylvester Stallone, for Rocky, and here's one that I would have thought was a supporting performance just on its face, just given my gut reaction, but the Academy considered a lead performance, Talia Shire, as Adrian hmm. in Rocky. Now, just for the record, because I'm a completist, the other four nominees that year, not part of our series, Liv Ullman, Face to Face, Sissy Spacek, Carrie, Marie Christine Barreau Cousin Cousine, and a performance we have both seen, and discussed here on the show, Giancarlo Giannini for Lena Vertmuller's Seven Beauties, yes. our overlooked Tour's Marathon last year. Did you go with De Niro, or did you dare to go with someone else for Best Lead Performer?
0: Well, I did personally consider Redford and Hoffman co-leads. Oh, for all I, all I the meant president's to throw them in. Men, so, I so yeah, to
1: throw them in. So have to consider them.
0: Exactly. I mean, they did give spoiler De Niro a. a a, some slight competition. I I love how they work together, particularly, you know, the lean, efficient reporter Redford gives us and then the cajoling reporter that we have in Hoffman. Just mm-hmm. love their dynamic. But yeah, this was, I think even if I had considered Faye Dunaway, that too would have been a challenge as a lead performance. For me, this was a James Cagney white heat situation. <laughs> there was just, you know, the obvious answer is De Niro, is Taxi Driver. Maybe one of the rediscoveries or new discoveries for mm-hmm. me in this revisit was how much he defined the movie. We think of it as a quintessential Scorsese film, and it is in so many ways also a Schrader film. But I think what drives this thing from start to finish is De Niro and the way he makes every fiber of Bickle's being, even his smile, assaultive. Yep um at the same time there's a vulnerability there that captures this just gaping chasm of loneliness that's opening up beneath this guy i think of the way he describes himself at one point as as god's lonely man and you know he's it's almost like he means he's god's only man like he he's the only man left on earth who knows what's wrong with society Mm -hmm. and feels the burden to fix it it falls on him and no one else is is with him on this Uh, it's just an absolutely incredible career making performance and again the defining element of taxi driver so i don't see how i could go anywhere else loneliness has followed me my whole life everywhere bars and cars sidewalks stores everywhere there's no escape from God's only man.
1: Yeah, you put it well in terms of framing it as a rediscovery. It was for both of us because we've both seen Taxi Driver at least a couple times before, I think. And I almost included De Niro in Best Performance I'd Forgotten and as Biggest Surprise, which is the next category we're going to get to. Just because I think historically it's so easy to take De Niro, but especially take this performance for granted. He's Travis Bickle. Of course, it's an iconic performance with some iconic scenes that we will definitely get to here later in the show. And despite that, and despite how powerful and towering it is, we both talked about it, such a subtle performance that is about those smiles and the little fidgets and all the physicality that reflects someone who is, as you said, Josh, vulnerable. There's a true earnestness to him and a sincerity even to him. And yet behind all of it, you do recognize just how unhinged he is. So that that balance of the the awkwardness, but the way he's still off-putting, to use your word, assaultive, it's it's a wonder. And it deserves even more recognition than it probably has gotten. So I'm with you. My flower pot is going to Robert De Niro as Travis Pickle in Taxi Driver. We will close this segment with. One more category, it is Biggest Surprise. So this could be a performance, it could be a moment, it could be just the way a certain movie resonated with you this time when you saw it, or maybe if it was a movie you were seeing for the first time, something that really did astonish you, maybe didn't match your expectations coming in. What's your pick?
0: Yeah, I'm going to start there with my nominees, with that experience, because everything— about news from home. And this is even after seeing, recently seen Chantal Ackerman's John Dielman. Everything from that documentary surprised me in, in a delightful way. I'll have more to say on that later. Also, what surprised me about a film I saw for the first time, Harlan County, USA, is that it's a, a pretty great music documentary Um, thought I had a fairly good idea of what the movie was about. And it was that in many ways, but all the folk songs and protest songs interwoven within the other things going on in Barbara Koppel's documentary were a beautiful surprise to me, but I'm going to stick with taxi driver for uh, this category because it was not necessarily De Niro's performance, as much as those final moments, that little epilogue that we spent some time mm-hmm. on, had pretty much totally forgotten that. This is where Travis is in his cab, picks up Sybil Shepherd's Betsy, and she rides for a while. He's watching her in his rearview mirror. He drops her off. And then that little touch where he does a double take in the rearview mirror, the sound itself distorts And then suddenly the outside of his cab has changed. The next time we see outside, it's no longer that tree-lined street she gets dropped off on. It's the neon signs of his usual route. And so seemed to me like a pretty clear fantasy moment and reinforced what I thought this time on this viewing is that much of what involves Betsy seems to be Travis's fantasy to me. Even the scenes that there's that moment where he tells her that when he saw her, he could he sensed that she wasn't a happy person talking to Albert Brooks' character, but we've seen other scenes that are the opposite of that, where the, her and Albert Brooks have you know, rapport and they seem to be getting along together. So it's just this idea that how much of his experience of Betsy was fantasy and the way Scorsese kind of leaves us with that question mark at the mm-hmm. end of the film, that I'd pretty much forgotten.
1: Good pick. Some of my candidates were car wash and really the, the poignancy of it. I don't think either of us expected that we would spend as much time seriously discussing that movie as we did, knowing what it was about and how silly it is. Ultimately, the amazing music, as you said, of Harlan County, USA and a quick digression here. So when I rewatched Harlan County this time, the music did really stand out to me and I was making some notes about it. And I was sure, Josh, after all these years of doing the show together, I still don't really know you. That's, that's really the wonder of this and what keeps bringing me back, Josh. Just when I think I have you pegged, you surprise me. So here I'm reckoning with the ghost of Josh Larson mm. in my head. Oh, boy. And I'm thinking.
0: No man, one wants to be in that place, Adam. This,
1: no, this protest music is so in your face and ubiquitous. It really is used repeatedly in the film. Hmm. I was sure that you we're not going to be a fan of it. You would like the movie, but you would actually argue that Barbara Koppel overused the music. So I was preparing in my head the argument I was going to have with you. Oh, my goodness. And then I decided to go back and look at my original notes from when I talked about Harlan County, USA, back on the show in, I think, 2006. It was either 05 or 06, one of our early Marathons documentaries here with our now producer, Sam Van Halgren. (laughs) And... I expressed then how much I loved the movie, and my only quibble was the the overuse of the music. What? It turns out what? it was the ghost of yes. myself, and it was me from 15 years ago I was having the argument with. And you were in your head. I was sure. I wasn't going to call attention to it because I was like, nobody remembers. <laughs> No one's going back through the archive. No one remembers that conversation from 2005. And also let me add, I hope no one's going back through the archive and I hope no one remembers that conversation from 2005. And then after the show comes out, I think it was Devin Wambald, a film spotting family member on Twitter is like, Hey Adam, (laughs) I noticed you changed your tune about the music. I was listening to the archive and he caught me, but you know what? This is why we do these series. Sometimes we, we have a change of heart. We watch with fresh eyes.
0: You know, I wish I had as clear of a memory of things I've said on this show as some listeners do. <laughs> it's oh, yeah. really amazing sometimes. Here's what I'm going to do for you, Adam. And I, I'm the person who can do this. I'm going to perform an exorcism for you right now. Okay. I'm going to say, get out, Josh Larson. Get out of Adam's head when he's uh-huh. watching movies. Okay. And let him just enjoy them in peace.
1: I need... I need some smoke. Yeah. I need maybe some bells. I need some chanting. Okay. Maybe it would work then, Josh. All right. Okay. So we're in harmony. And then I'm now going to eliminate that harmony by pointing out another nominee I considered, but did not go with. And that's biggest surprise.
0: Sylvester Stallone, really good in rocky. Oh my gosh. Come really on. really Good. Come on. Legitimately good good performance. I mean, here's where I wish we, we had video, Adam. You know what I'm doing.
1: You're punching. You're shadowboxing. Oh. Just like Stallone, man. All movie long. <laughs> he is way more natural than you, Josh. That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> well, okay, I'll give him that. <laughs> my winner, my winner, biggest surprise, and primarily the winner because I didn't imagine going in that it could be a surprise. It's the constancy of Patty Chayefsky's clairvoyance from network and we talked about this when we reviewed it and yes i know that some others including i want to say michael phillips maybe on a trivia spotting event somehow brought up network and talked about how 45 years later hasn't really held up well that's not the experience that either of us had with network and specifically you watch it again and i've watched it many times and you watch it with a 90s perspective or early 2000s, or now a 2020 or 2021 perspective, and you go, okay, it's predicting or seems to be predicting a lot about where we've ended up from a media and entertainment standpoint. Of course, go back to that Ned Beatty scene. It seems that it's prescient about corporations and their unchecked power. And then, of course, we all really discovered reality television when, with the real world back in, was that... The early '90s, Josh, I think, and yeah, of course, sounds right. That's that's pretty much all we see, or much of what we see. Of course, that's that's shifted a little bit to a lot more scripted stuff now, but there's still plenty of reality TV if you're flipping the channels on any given night. So it seemed like somehow Patty Chayefsky was a wizard who was looking into a crystal ball, and then you watch it in 2021, and you see that he also seems to have foretold user-generated content. You know, this idea of reality being captured by people who are actually experiencing it in the moment, not by other people. And we spent some time on this. You flash back to the insurrection on January 6th and all the people holding their phones, shooting videos, streaming live at the same time. Chayefsky, he may not have known it, but but he did see it all coming and he saw it all coming, not because he knew something about technology it's because he knew something about human nature and he knew something of course about media but he really understood people and people at their darkest and their most base and that's a lot of what network is i think trying to trying to reckon with where it has that Chayefsky cynicism of course at its core and yet you feel like it was made by someone who isn't just trying to be didactic as didactic as the movie ultimately is. It's someone who I think as an intellectual also hoped that maybe somehow we could get ourselves through this, that if we really could rely on intellect and, and rationale and reason that maybe we would be okay. If only, you know, and the movie really explores the other side of that. So for me being surprised yet again, watching network, and how much he seemed to actually get right. That's my winner.
0: You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There are no Russians. There are no Arabs. There are no third worlds. There is no West. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and imane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. Petrodollars, electrodollars, multidollars, reichmarks, rims, rubles, pounds, and shekels. It is the international system of currency which determines the totality of life on this planet. Well, and where network resonates today too i think and this relates to the insurrection is how it captures anger in particular and and this relates to taxi driver too you know these are both movies that articulate a specifically american sort of anger that was potent then and unfortunately still pretty potent today i think we're we're finding out all right, like any good awards show, ours is running long. We'll have our picks for Best Iconic Scene and Best Picture when we come back, plus a review of something not from 1976, but 2021. Pixar's Luca. Stay with us.
1: Seconda stella destra, questo è il cammino.
0: E poi dritto, fino al mattino. Poi la strada, la trovi da te porta all'isola
1: che non c'è forse questo mi sembrerà strano
0: ma la ragione mi ha un po' preso la mano My name is Giulia Marcovaldo
1: We underdogs have to look out for each other What's under the dogs? my dad. What do you think he kills with those? Anything that swims.
0: Uh. Ah!
1: That's from the trailer for Luca, the latest from Pixar. It comes exclusively to Disney Plus this weekend. The plot, two young boys are having the best summer ever on the Italian Riviera. The only problem, they're actually sea monsters, or as Josh would call them, mer- Men or Mer Boys? Yeah, I think Mer Boys. They're boys. Mer Boys. Okay. Director Enrico Casarosa also directed the 2011 Pixar short La Luna. Do you want to start, Josh, with how Luca works as a Pixar film, or maybe should we start with how indebted it is to Miyazaki?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm really eager to hear what you made of that connection in particular because I think. There are two Miyazaki films for me that this is most clearly indebted to. In plot, shares a lot with Pagno, right? Mm-hmm. But in place, it's pretty much all Porco Rosso. Portorosa is the name of this seaside Italian right. village that, that the boys go to. And if I'm remembering correctly, after doing the marathon, the Miyazaki marathon with your family, Adam, Porco Rosso stood out as one of your favorites, right? Which I think, yeah. you know, most people like, but isn't always mentioned as Top Miyazaki. But you mm-hmm. said it it was one of the ones that resonated with you the most. So, yeah, let's start there. I mean, I think you can see the influences. For me, they didn't overwhelm where this felt like a, a cheap riff or any sort of knockoff. I think it's to Luca's credit that it has these sort of influences. But what did you make of that and uh, Porco Rosso's influence in particular?
1: Yeah, well... I will say about Luca that I both appreciate its sweetness and its simplicity and wish maybe it felt a little bit more substantial or at least maybe it surprised me more. And it's not only because of some of those touchstones that you've mentioned, I agree on Pagno, certainly Porco Rosso, but it's hard not to think about finding Nemo as well in the scared parents who right. don't want who don't want their son to venture too far away right and they're very afraid of anything on the surface and it's really all about this this child figuring out his place in the world and whether or not he's actually willing to risk it and go out into the world. Of course, then along those lines, I thought about The Little Mermaid a lot watching it, maybe not in style, but certainly in terms of the story. So there there was a certain inevitability to it all. And with Porco Rosso being Miyazaki, I think that's a movie you can come away from and you could argue with the person you saw it with about what the movie is really about. You know, there's always those kind of metatextual or subtextual elements that you can really have some fun considering whenever you're watching Miyazaki and some of these Studio Ghibli movies. There's a lot that's open to interpretation, different metaphorical readings. And I would say that Luca is, and I know we could get into this a little bit, but I think even the thing it is suggesting it could be about, it's pretty on the nose about it. Luca is about what it's about. I think, it's, I think it's pretty straightforward. And again, that's something that I can appreciate while also maybe feeling like I wanted a little bit more from it. And I'll give you an example. And this isn't a case where this moment ruined the movie or really sidetracked the movie at all for me. It just kind of gets at this idea that it feels a little, a little slight or that there could have been a little bit more development. There's a moment during the climax where a supporting character has to make a judgment call where everyone pauses to wait to see how that person is going to react. And it's supposed to be at least a somewhat powerful moment, but I don't really feel like they sufficiently develop that character for me to feel one way or another about that decision in the moment. Like I neither bought that he would do what he did, nor did I buy that he wouldn't do what he did. So did you have any kind of similar reaction, Josh, or were you on board?
0: Are you, let me ask, are you referring to Julia's father? I am, yeah. Can, okay. See, I thought that yeah. was set up, I'm not going to spoil it, but I, I thought that was set up because they've established that there was an a uh, relationship between him and the character in particular who he has to have this response to. It Right. I thought I, I got a sense that they had their own sort of bond that no one hmm. else in the movie did. Just because of a few light touches, a few small moments, and so it did have that weight for me. Uh, I, I think you're right, though. Overall, that this is more straightforward. Um, maybe why that didn't bother me is because I think Luca means to be that. I think Luca is happy mm-hmm. to be that. Uh, there are other Pixar films that perhaps want to be top tier Pixar and aren't quite. And this is something different. This is this is, to me is mid tier Pixar but it's kind of where it wants to be. It's comfortable with those ambitions mm-hmm. and there's a difference there. It's so to me it didn't really fall short of what it wanted to do. I think it's also, you know, a movie for younger audiences and how many times have I said that the best Pixar movies, in my mind, are the ones made for parents first, and the kids can enjoy them as well. I think this is one that is maybe made for kids first, um, which is rare for them. I appreciate that about it. I found a lot of resonance. I I think what you're referring to, the metaphor, which is right there for you, but. I don't think they push too hard is that this could be seen as a, a coming out party for, you know, especially thinking that it, this is Pride Month when it's being released. That's where um, my head went. Yes. Yeah, because, you know, these two boys, when they turn into... The sea creatures, um, they have these just gorgeous rainbow scales of different colors. So it's right there for you. Whenever they get wet, they shimmer. And the climax really has a lot to do with whether they're going to be accepted. And I think it would have pushed things too far if the movie had suggested, maybe some people read it this way, but that there was any sort of queer identity literally to any of these characters. I didn't get that feeling. Maybe others might. I like that it left it on the metaphorical level, but to me that gave the movie a little more heft. And honestly, you know, if there are young audiences seeing it, might they might find it comforting on that level as yeah, well. That's valid. D- depending on you know what a what a kid is going through. So so yeah, maybe maybe a little more open to the smaller ambition of Luca than you are. I will say too, you know, what I appreciated in terms of the visual design is that took opportunities to be distinct from Miyazaki, to be distinct from something like Finding Nemo. Maybe some of the underwater scenes with the parents, as you mentioned, were too familiar. But I really liked the character design of the two boys here, of Luca and Alberto. Mm -hmm. Uh, Great vocal performance, especially by Jacob Tremblay, I should say, as, as Luca. And Alberto is voiced by Jack Dylan Grazer. I like how they almost look, if you Google like Italian Pinocchio wooden puppets, they have that, again, there's a simplicity to it. You know, it's mm-hmm. not realistic. It's not quote unquote sophisticated like we've come to expect from Pixar. They're they're very round heads and big eyes and kind of rosy cheeks and that just jumps out to me as those sort of classic wooden yeah. puppets. Um, so I like that as sort of a visual aesthetic that is distinct. And I'll tell you what I liked about the movie most of all is that Opening section, well, maybe in the first third, where Alberto and Luca get to know each other. They have this island where they go and play all day. They have dreams of getting a Vespa, so they kind of build this wonky Vespa mm-hmm. out, of, out of wood and wheels and just spend all their time launching it off a ramp into the sea. And I think this is where the lack of ambition works in its to its credit because that's all the movie wants to be about is capturing what it was like to be that age to meet a new friend and just get lost in something stupid mm-hmm. <laughs> and something potentially dangerous. But, oh man, was it fun? You know, it just, it reminded me of building ramps, you know, when I was a kid on the sidewalks by my house and skateboarding over them and just that sort of dumb stuff. I think in, the, in its emotional texture, Luca really captures that in a way that feels incredibly authentic. I agree. Those scenes
1: are the standout scenes in the movie and not to derail us here, but speaking of Jacob Tremblay... Am I the only person who thinks this is borderline stunt casting where the kid who made his debut in the movie Room is now in this film where he's kind of similar, right? He sort of lives under the water where the entire universe as his parents want it. Yeah, right, right. It extends only to the surface and he is safe as long as he only encounters the world and all of its mysteries and wonders below the surface and he can't he can't do anything outside of it. So that is something that kind of struck me. I agree with you it's a it's a very good vocal performance. And I agree with you as well, Josh, about the visual style and that kind of merging of that almost cartoonish or more fairy tale type of physical look to the characters merged with the kind of photorealism that we expect from Pixar. But then I like how they also veer away from that a little bit to express the the disparity between those two worlds. So the world under the sea does feel maybe a little bit familiar. That's because it also feels like it's the kind of thing we are used to seeing only expressed in a fantasy, right? Mm. Whereas then as soon as they get above water, oh, the the rocks actually seem a little more tangible. They seem more real. the The Riviera town itself, right? I just love how that, is showcased in terms of the, the color because it is so sun drenched and so vivid and so, so vibrant that it really does make you long for the type of experiences that those boys are having running around that town on bikes, just like we used to do as kids. It didn't look like that in small town, Iowa. (laughs) I'll tell you that, but it does make you kind of fantasize along those lines and that, that, Again, dichotomy between the fairy tale aspect and the photorealism is something that they really merge nicely in this film.
0: Well, Luca is currently playing exclusively on Disney Plus. Now, Adam, you also caught up with a new music doc that goes into limited release this weekend. It's Edgar Wright's The Sparks Brothers. Sparks is a music duo, Brothers Ron and Russell Mayo. They formed in 1967, put out 25 studio albums released between 71 and 2020. The documentary describes them as your favorite bands, favorite band, completely new to me. Were you familiar with Sparks before this doc, Adam? What'd you think of it?
1: Well, I do want to clarify what you just said. You said completely new to you. Were they truly completely new to you just as they were to me? Meaning before this documentary came out, before you maybe saw anything about it online, had you ever heard of Sparks or anybody referred to as the Sparks brothers or Ron and Russell Mail?
0: Not until they were mentioned as a subject of Edgar Wright doc.
1: Yeah, exactly. So you watch this film and I think maybe part of the measure of success in terms of whether or not Wright accomplished what he was trying to accomplish and whether or not it's a good documentary. You have to answer that question. Does a band that I've never even heard of really warrant a documentary and justify the time I'm going to put into it. And by the end, you're legitimately wondering how nobody has made a movie about them before. And you're, you're questioning your validity as a music fan, as an arts connoisseur. You are not questioning. And I'd say even after about 15 minutes, you're not questioning their validity as artists. Because of the music or because of the story or both? Both. Okay. That's the thing. You can't. You can't separate them. The tagline on the website, and you see it a few places, says 50 years, 25 albums, 345 songs, unlimited genius. When you think about the longevity, the prolific output, really regardless of whether you watch the movie and really, really dig the music or you instantly go to Spotify or Apple or whatever and download their songs, I think you do recognize that the genius Is Unlimited in that they have constantly reinvented themselves while remaining true to an overall mischievousness and an overall avant-garde ethos. And then they're still going. So, Josh, it seems as if it truly has no limit. Like they're the kind of artists who don't just have a period or a prolific period. They just have their careers. They can't do anything but create the art they create, and they will keep making it at basically the same level until they're no longer with us. I I think it's impossible to look at them or listen to them and not see how how fussed over and kind of calculated it appears to be. I mean, the guy is sporting a Hitler mustache, I mean, obviously, and it's been a hallmark of his, of his look, obviously it's meant to provoke on some level and yet nothing about it and who they are does feel forced. Nothing about the music does feel like it's anything but completely genuine and completely honest. Jason Schwartzman appears in it because he's a Sparks fan. He's got a great line. He says, I don't want to see this movie. I don't want to learn too much about them. And then he says, I'll watch it, wait for it, because I'm in it. (laughs) But that, that resonated with me because they are so mysterious that you've got a documentary now that may be undoing some of that. And I wonder if some of their fans, as much as you usually want to know even more about the artists behind the music you love, maybe with Sparks, that's not the case. I will say what Wright does so well here, he successfully demystifies the enigma that is Sparks while adding to the mythology. You don't learn too much to Shortsman's concern, partly because I don't think you can learn too much about them and the career they've had. And one doc certainly isn't going to do it, but I think Wright also just inherently understands what to probe and when to push and which threads to pull and which ones to just let be and kind of let everyone consider for a little bit. And it's got that Edgar Wright cheeky sense of humor, too, that is appropriate for Edgar Wright in his material, but also matches Sparks so well. The title itself, even you realize early on, Wright just addresses it, is kind of its own provocation at the brothers and maybe their fan base because the band is called Sparks and they are brothers, but we've named them. They are not the Sparks brothers, and they actually say they hate it when they get referred to as the Sparks brothers. So Edgar Wright made a movie called the Sparks brothers. He appears in it once or twice. He's got a couple talking head moments where he talks about his fandom and his title Underneath his name is Fanboy. And then the one that actually (laughs) did make me laugh out loud, maybe I'm just an easy audience, Josh, is he had John Taylor on screen with Nick Rhodes. So I'm speaking here to the, the 80s music fans among us. John Taylor and Nick Rhodes, both on screen. And this is really more of a visual joke. And since you're looking at me, you'll get it. Under one of them, it said Duran. And under the other one, it said Duran. Very nice. I loved it. So yeah, I'm a big fan of the Sparks brothers movie. I have started to dip my toe in the Sparks musical catalog. And again, that could probably take you a lifetime at this point to really get through, but there's some really great stuff there. And it made me, here's another thing it did for me, Josh. It made me even more excited about the film. Annette coming out, the Leos Carrick's film starring oh with Adam driver, Marion Cotillard, right. And Adam driver, because actually It is completely based on music by the Sparks Brothers. They wrote every part of it and actually are the creators of the material that Hmm. is being adapted for the screen. And that's actually kind of a touching moment in the film, too, because they had a couple other moments in their lives where Hollywood teased them or they thought they were going to get their chance on the big screen. I'm blanking on who it was. I think maybe Truffaut at one moment, they were going to collaborate with Truffaut or some other French new wave director film was a big driver, a big inspiration for them. And I think it was Truffaut. And they had another moment where Tim Burton, Tim Burton was going to make one of their movies when Tim Burton was at his height and that fell through. And so they've always kind of had their heart broken when it comes to their music and movies. And now Annette's coming out. So again, just gives me another impetus to want to see, that movie when it opens. So yeah, I definitely recommend the Sparks Brothers, which is currently playing
0: in limited release. So should we talk about next week's plans, Adam? I, sure. I see a note here from Sam. It, it just says F9 as the teaser for, Is does that is that That's apply? The show. If you're doing a Fast and Furious movie, your show doesn't need anything else, I guess, huh? Maybe, maybe. And we will note that basically as soon as that
1: show is done being recorded, we're out of here. We're both both going on vacation with our families, so we will have an off week, but of course we can't go on vacation before F9 opens. Mm -mm. And if we got to figure out some filler, we'll figure it out, but we are going to see F9 and we will share our results from our recent film spotting poll. The ensemble car movie so far without a sequel that you think should reunite the original cast for a sequel.
0: The options we gave them, Josh, were... Drive, Baby Driver, speaking of Edgar Wright, Talladega Nights, Death Proof, Speed Racer, Gone in 60 Seconds, Days of Thunder, or Other. And
1: no notes here. We don't know how this one is going. We're not going to tease it anyway. You'll just have to go to filmspotting.net. There is a link at the top of the page. There's a poll about midway down the page. You can vote and you can make your voice heard and tell us which movie you most want to see the sequel to. Leave a comment. If you do, please let us know where you're listening from. Last week, we announced a giveaway for some Blu-ray combo packs for the newly remastered Indiana Jones Quadrilogy. It is time to announce the winners. Josh, I think the most entered contest in the history of the show.
0: You're kidding. Well, maybe we should have done it's that. Tons of entries. That Raiders 40th anniversary show yeah. we were talking about. Of course, everybody knows this quadrilogy coming from legendary filmmakers Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, one of the greatest movie franchises of all time, now in 4K Ultra HD. Collected together, all four original Indiana Jones movies have been visually remastered in HDR10 and Dolby Vision and state-of-the-art Dolby Atmos for optimum picture and sound quality. This is, yep, just in time to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the adventure that started it all, Raiders of the Lost Ark. There's
1: seven hours of special features on one disc, and you can own it now on 4K Ultra HD and Blu-ray from Paramount Pictures. The films are rated PG and PG-13. To enter, all you had to do was send us an email and rank all four Indiana Jones movies, a ranking that is not without maybe some controversy or some passion behind it, Josh. And I am only angry that we have five winners, and they're gonna get each this collection sent to them, all four movies. I'm happy about that. What I'm not happy about is that neither of us have a copy.
0: Yeah, I thought of that was Indiana Jones was part of the deal with these giveaways. No. no, no, we're giving away. I mean,
1: we could give away three <laughs> and just keep two, and no one would be hmm. any the wiser. Hmm. But it's too late. It's too late. We have picked our five winners, and as we read the comments here, we read their rankings. I am just going to note. That sometimes people wonder, you know, are these contests really random? Is it whoever just comes up out of the hat or whatever name you land on? I promise you, I promise you, as self-serving as it may seem, I would never in a million years pick three of five winners who agree with us. Hmm. And It seems
0: like that would be hard to even do. I know. Logistically. And yet, that's how it came out, Josh. All right. Our first winner is Justin from South Pasadena, California. And yeah. He wrote in, Josh, you pulled the exact words and rankings from my mind. This doesn't happen often, by the way. Justin, me, you, we all said Raiders number one, Last Crusade two, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull three, and Temple of Doom last. Here's Justin. Raiders and Last Crusade are classics. Crystal Skull has its flaws, but it isn't as bad as people think. Sure, it has some eye-rolling moments. However, it is leagues ahead of Temple of Doom, which has absolutely aged worse over time. Ben Chung in Chicago, same ranking, says Crystal Skull is one of the
1: most underrated blockbusters of the last 20 years and is as pure a piece of popcorn entertainment as could exist. Man, the the Larson is strong with Ben Chung. That's commitment, Ben. I like it. In particular, I admire the seamless return of both Harrison Ford and Karen Allen to their roles. It's an impressive feat that they were able to pick up the mantle and fedora 20 years later without missing a beat.
0: Here's another winner with that same order. It's John in Orlando, Florida. Boring as this may be, my Indiana Jones ranking is the same as the order Adam and Josh somehow agreed upon. My second trip back to a theater as a fully vaccinated person was a 40th anniversary showing. My first time seeing Raiders of the Lost Ark on the big screen. It remains an ideal, capital E, entertainment. In terms of Last Crusade, John says the father-son aspect isn't enough to make it my number one, but it's a great addition. And it's Sean Bloody Connery. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull? Most will tell you it's a disaster if they even acknowledge its existence. But not I. I say it's a pretty good time and a fairly bold genre swerve toward pulpy sci-fi. As far as Temple of Doom, John says I've never been a fan. Two or three good action sequences can't save a movie where I find two of the three leads entirely grating. I appreciated hearing some defense of Crystal Skull. Not having it at the bottom would be heresy to many. And as always, I appreciate the show. Our final two winners...
1: Just rankings here steve matthews rockville maryland maybe the more conventional choice raiders of the lost ark one last crusade two but he does have temple of doom three ahead of crystal skull and josh i don't know if you noticed this he doesn't have crystal skull listed as number four he has it listed as number 874 Uh, i'm not sure about your math there steve well at least steve wasn't one of the people who said there were only three movies the fourth movie just didn't happen at all our fifth and final winner is, I love saying this, Anna Montana. It's I, I it, think it's, it's Anna from
0: Montana. Oh, okay. Adam.
1: Anna, comma, Montana. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade at number one. Mm. Raiders of the Lost Ark, two. Okay. Crystal Skull three. Temple of Doom. Four. So just reversing those first two from our order. And Anna says, Okie dokie, Dr. Jones, is my most quoted line from the series, but from my least favorite movie, Kate Capshaw's character just never stops screaming. The biggest trouble with her is the noise.
0: It's rough. Gets a little rough in Temple of Doom. Congratulations to all our winners. Thank you to everyone for entering. Again, you can own all four Indiana Jones movies in 4K, Ultra HD, and Blu-ray from Paramount Pictures. They're rated PG and PG-13. This week over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, it's part two of their Survivors
1: Down Under pairing. The new The Dry with Eric Bana and Peter Weir's Picnic at Hanging Rock. And next week, they're coming back with In the Heights... And West Side Story, which begs the question, what are they going to do when West Side Story comes
0: out? Mm, West Side Story in Hamilton? I don't know. We'll see.
1: Maybe. will come up with something. The Next Picture Show is hosted by Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. If you're not subscribed and you're not listening, we don't know why. New episodes of The Next Picture Show post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts. More info. At nextpictureshow.net.
0: One way you can support the show is to join the film spotting family over on Patreon. Here's what you'll get for five bucks a month ad free episodes, those come via a dedicated RSS feed, early show downloads, live pre sales and discounts, a merch discount, and monthly bonus episodes. We've stayed true to this promise, Adam. Every month we've delivered. <laughs> we're cutting a, it close. A bonus sometimes. Show. I think we're yeah. gonna cut it close again this month, we are. but we're gonna get it out there. It's a 70s coming of age blind spotting review of Nicholas Rogue's walkabout. We're not doing this tonight, right? We were gonna, but we're we're, we're gonna not. do it a little later. We're gonna do it
1: a little later. Okay. And you have already done your homework. Yes. And how do you feel about that, Josh? <laughs> I
0: mean there are some things we're gonna have to talk about, Adam. Great hmm.
1: Great. I love I love hearing coming of age. And in the same sentence, there's some things we're gonna have to talk about, like it's coming from my father. Are we gonna have the talk? <laughs> well, do you need the talk, Adam? Well, probably not. And we'll get to that in a moment. We also. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, in a roundabout <laughs> That's way. A tease. Me. I mean, you know what, it might make the show more interesting. But we also allow film spotting family members to participate in our monthly trivia spotting events. This is the 12th one coming up in July, Friday, July 9th, 7 p.m. Central Time start. Tickets are on sale now and going very fast for our family members. We are calling this one Todd's 12 in honor of the godfather of trivia spotting, our quiz master, Thomas Todd. And we've got a regular lineup of some returning captains. I think I can go ahead and say. Returning champ, Kristen Lopez from IndieWire is going to come back. Very nice. We're going to have Mariah, a three-time champion back, Mariah Gates. Oh man, competition
0: is already pretty stiff with
1: those two. I know. And he's making his return been gone for a little bit, but Michael Phillips is coming back to trivia spotting. We will have three new captains as well. And I'm really, really excited about all three of them. But I think there's a couple in there that will really wow our trivia spotting participants so if there's still a chance for you to get a ticket get it now that's todd's 12 and you can participate in our trivia spotting events by being a film spotting family member now i did just want to throw in something because i know that it was on the mind it's been lingering on the minds of all the family members josh including yourself who hung around for our little post trivia spotting chat Mm -hmm. where when it's all done All the competition is over. We just kind of hang out. Anybody who wants to hang out for sometimes five or 10 minutes, sometimes 15 or 20 or maybe a half an hour. And we just talk about whatever is on anyone's minds. And it came up that the day we were having this competition, Trivia Spotting 11, it was my daughter Sophie's birthday, her 17th birthday. And I had to go to have dinner with the family and give her her present. And I was so excited to give her her present. And everyone seemed excited for me. People were, were jealous, partly, that, that they weren't getting to go. I got her those Pitchfork Plus passes to see Phoebe Bridgers Friday night at Pitchfork here in Chicago. Now, what I also told listeners is that really when I bought the tickets, I was definitely also buying a gift for myself because I really like Phoebe Bridgers too. And I want to go to the concert. And, you know, she's going to be a senior. How many more times am I going to have to hang out with my daughter before she goes off to college? It was it was all too perfect. And then a few days after I bought the tickets, I had a realization. And that realization was, she's got a boyfriend. She probably would rather go to this concert with her boyfriend, who, just for the record, is not as big a Phoebe Bridges fan as I am. But she probably wants to go with him.
0: It took you a couple of days to to have that it thought, did. huh?
1: It did, actually. Okay. That's, how, all right. that's how good of a father I am. But at least at least I had the thought, and I really wrestled with it. And I was really hoping that all the dads out there on Trivia Spotting would say, Adam, absolutely. This is going to be a really important bonding experience with Sophie, and you should go. And they'd make me feel good about what was in my head. Except that's not really what happened. Most people, especially all the women on the call, but also you, Josh, said, don't do it, Adam. Don't do it.
0: Yeah, I I, I mean, I did offer you the really awkward option of going, getting another ticket and going as a chaperone. I mean, if you really
1: wanted to be (laughs) the worst dad ever. So the culmination of this story is I hadn't really fully decided what I was going to do. Though I was leaning towards, I'm going to have to sacrifice here. I'm going to have to let Sophie go with her boyfriend who was there that night, who we were having dinner with and who we were going to open presents with. And Sophie opens up the envelope that has the ticket in it, the two tickets in it. And the first thing she says is she turns to him and says, you're going to have to make sure you're not working that
0: night. There it is. No hesitation. Sophie caught on a little quicker than you did. A lot quicker than I did. the dynamics of this scenario, Adam. Yeah. Now,
1: don't think I didn't milk it a little bit to both make her feel guilty and him, but that didn't really have much impact because Sophie seems completely unmoved by it and really excited to go with her boyfriend to see Phoebe Bridgers. So I'll be home that night, Josh. And as it should be. I think things ended up in the right place. (laughs) If... You would like to participate in important life decisions, family decisions like that. You can join the Film Spotting family, Patreon.com/slash/FilmSpotting.
0: It's time for Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a Film Spotting T-shirt. A couple of weeks ago, Adam and I massacred this scene. I do you have to come back to this damn town. Wanted to make a new life for myself.
1: I'm sorry I was born with this perfect bone structure, that my hair looks better
0: done up with gel and mousse than hidden under a stupid hat with a light on it. All I ever wanted to do was make you proud of me, Pop. With what, your male modeling? Prancing around in your underwear with your wiener hanging
1: out for everyone to see? You're dead to me, boy. You're more dead to me than your dead mother. I just thank the Lord she didn't live to see her son as a mermaid. Merman.
0: (coughs) Merman. That was Ben Stiller and John Voight in 2001. Zoolander, written by Ben Stiller, John Hamburg, and Drake Sather, directed by Stiller. I forgot about that, but yeah, he directed this one.
1: Along with that massacre, we reviewed Christian Petzold's Undina, and we had a 7 from 76 review of Harlan County, USA. So why that scene from Zoolander? I'm not sure we have to answer it. Family member Bianca from Queens, New York says, Who knew that at the cross-section of coal miner strike documentary and German water nymph myth is a really, really ridiculously good-looking male model? German water nymph myth, by the way, is the name of my new band. But my real question is, can Josh turn left? Mm. <laughs> I remember Zoolander was ripped apart by critics when it came out, but it has always had a real soft spot in my heart. It's a theater-going experience I'll always remember because it was the first movie I went to after September 11th. I had finally taken to leaving the house to go out with friends and do something normal. The theater was fairly empty, so we had it mostly to ourselves, and this completely absurd, silly movie was exactly what I needed in that moment. And I must say, I was giggling just as much at your rendition. Although, Adam, you were so cold in your channeling of void. I think you might have made Josh cry. <laughs> Aside from the Harlan County USA and Undina Italians, you also get a cameo from the Mauritanians, The Batch, in Zoolander too. Good poll, Danica.
0: Hey, how about that? Yeah, there, there's often crying in Massacre Theater. We also heard from Ren Aguila from Quezon City. Philippines. The line about being a male model made this a dead giveaway. The film is Zoolander and the mining reference has to do with the show's discussion of Harlan County, USA. Also, Zoolander has to do with how reactionary forces fight back against laws meant to curb exploitative (laughs) labor practices in the garment industry. Uh Very apt, given the theme of that documentary. Well done, Ren. Mark
1: Shaplin from Toronto says, Entering my first massacre theater contest, and as I was re-listening to the portion to get the instructions to submit, I listened to Josh's delivery of Merman, Many times. And I must say, it is Ben Stiller level good. Hey. Wow. A scene that still makes me laugh no matter how many times I've heard it. Indeed, a perfect fit with this week's review of Undina.
0: Rob Shames from Watertown, Massachusetts has a question for us. What is this? A podcast for ants? No impression there, Josh. That's the best line in the movie. <laughs> it's a good one. Here's Eddie. He's in Austin. I was so amused by Adam reciting John Voight's line with your wiener hanging out that I didn't fully appreciate the brilliance of marrying this scene to these two reviews. This is clearly Sam's masterpiece. Absolutely incredible work.
1: I think it might be Sam's masterpiece. Albert Malafront in Pasadena, California says, I believe it's the 20th anniversary of Zoolander. Here we go. So feel free to do a sacred merman review. (laughs) No sacred cows, sacred mermans. Why not? I like it. Josh, the hat, pretty brimming, a lot of love out there for this movie, and I think your impression was just that good. Reach in to the film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner.
0: All right. Our winner is Mary McEnroy. McEnroy? She's from Iowa City, Adam. How how do they say it out that way? (laughs)
1: I don't know that the name is quite that common, though Mary has been listening for a long time. We congratulate her. Mary, email feedback at filmspotting.net. We'll set you up with your very own Film Spotting t-shirt, or maybe the next time I'm back there, I'll just drop it off. Come down! Horace! When the fellow's dead, the play is over. Say what you have to say with speed and punch the audience out of their misery. We move on to this week's edition of Massacre Theatre, Maybe won't be quite as memorable as our Zoolander performance. Josh, I know you were all excited. I'm going to give a hint here to get to portray an actor with an accent until you watch the scene and discovered that, in fact, that actor is putting on an accent. Mm-hmm. It's not the one he was born with. No, it's I mean, it's, it, it I is the one what you I'm were born end
0: with. Up doing, but it's an American accent in the movie. I mean, who knows it what's going
1: to come out here? <laughs> so this is a short scene, but. We think the tie-in to the show will probably be fairly obvious, and we also think the scene itself might be fairly obvious. At least if you've seen the movie, we changed the names. Mm -hmm. There is a reference to both one of the characters in the scene and another one. We thought that that would be a little too obvious, though in fact, in changing them, as we sometimes do, we might have given you a hint. Here or there. That's enough for hints though, Josh.
0: No, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say imagine sloshing water in the background. That's too much. Okay. That's another hint. That's
1: another hint, but you're right. This scene really does need some sound effects. Nevertheless, we are professionals and we will persevere. You started off. I'm going to give you the action. Are you ready? Yes. And action. I love Apple. You love me.
0: You're not marrying me. Jason, I don't love you. No, I don't mean that as a threat. To be honest, I'm a little relieved you're going. I think we've seen enough of each other for a while. What? You can be a leech. You know that. And it's boring. You can be quite boring. (laughs)
1: And scene. Scene.
0: Okay, so... Did I I slip into an accent there? Yeah, a
1: little little channeling there, Josh. I, I saw what you were up to. If you know what film... We just massacred. Email the movie's title along with your name and location. To feedback at filmspotting.net, your deadline is Monday,
0: July 5th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and
1: go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell... I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. I want you to get up right now. We get back into our seven from 76 best year ever awards. We're calling them the Flower Pots, a reference to all the president's men with Peter Finch's Howard Beale and that iconic moment from network. So as we've been doing these awards, looking back on these best year ever series, we're not just picking the best scene, though I wonder if by the time we come up with our criteria, or we think through the different candidates, we might just end up at our favorite scene overall from the series. Josh iconic though suggests that if we're looking back at these great movie years and for the most part movies that are iconic themselves, movies that defined those years as great, there are going to be at least one, maybe two standout scenes that when you hear the title, that's what comes to mind. And surely When I say network, as great as that Ned Beatty speech is, you have meddled with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Beale. As good as that is and so many other moments in network are, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore, right? That's that's the network moment.
0: Yeah, I think if you're going to go with uh, network choice, that's the one. I like as well, not just the drama of it, but... How it taps into what I was talking about before, this idea of particularly American anger and how that anger is exploited. It's a mm-hmm. through line in the movie and just perfectly encapsulated in that scene. So, yeah, I did consider that. Didn't go that route, though. Can I give you um, what I think is maybe the iconic scene from All the President's Men? You might have a different sure. one. This, sure. was a, well, this was another nominee for me. It's not what okay. I went with.
1: Okay. Well, I was going to play a little game oh, where okay. we, we named the movie and- we saw whether or not we had the same iconic scene that came to mind. If they're iconic, sure. just like that, I'm at his hell scene. When I say taxi driver, okay. we both say, you talking, talking to me. Talking to me, yeah. Which right? is, spoiler, my winner. So yeah, oh, okay. that's, that's, well, uh,
0: that's where I went. Now, which, okay. which one are you going to say for all the president's men?
1: Well, that's going to be my winner. So now it's just chaos. Why don't we wait on oh, that? No. What about Rocky? Your beloved Rocky. What's I mean, the iconic Rocky moment?
0: Um, Probably the ending, right? Which which I did express some affection for when Talia Shire comes to greet him, and it yes. kind of becomes more about them than the victim. I really the, like that. Okay. Yes, yeah. but, but that's not it for you. Mm,
1: I think most people hear the music in their head and they think about eating the raw eggs in the morning and the running montage, up the stairs. The training, the training montage yeah, that's probably true. might be number one, but you've got you've got one B or number two in there. Now we did have two other movies three, actually, that I don't know anyone would consider as having iconic scenes, News from Home, The Chantel Ackerman, Car Wash, and Harlan County, USA. But did you consider any options from
0: those movies? I've got a Car Wash one because it was the only thing that came to mind for me when I heard Car Wash. You know, I, I somehow saw this and it's the... Most florid shot in the movie that I mentioned, it's where the young skateboarder, Calvin, played by Michael Mm -hmm. Fennell, he comes past on his skateboard. The car wash, the attendants are in a line cheering him on, kind of whipping their rags in the air, really excited. And it's a really nice camera tracking behind him on wheels itself. It actually made me think, I wonder if Bing Liu had this shot in mind while filming some of the skateboarding scenes and minding the gap. You know, it just kind of captures the freedom of that moment. And somewhere or other, I had seen that and associated Car Wash with that exact shot. So not quite on the level of what we've mentioned already, but uh, kind of the standout visual moment for me from Car Wash.
1: Yeah. And I wondered if it was maybe the line, which I think I read somewhere, at least someone argue was the most famous line from the movie, the one about being a woman and more of a man than you'll ever be when Lindy disses Dwayne in mm-hmm. Car Wash. So that's one I did give some thought to. I think maybe if you were looking at News from Home, you'd think about the ending, that final shot from the ferry pulling mm-hmm. away yep. from Manhattan and looking back on the city and seeing it really in a way that we haven't otherwise that kind of stereotypical image of New York, but it's still one that's that's all obscured by the by kind of the fog of the morning. Between News from Home Car Wash and Harlan County, USA, certainly some scenes that are memorable and have lingered with me for 15, 16 years since the first time I've seen it. Not exactly scenes that maybe you would consider iconic, not moments that captured the zeitgeist, if you will, the way you talking to me or I'm mad as hell did. But you said, Josh, that you had a runner up from All the President's Men. I'd love to hear what you think the All the President's Men
0: moment is, or it's choose your own adventure. Tell us why you talking to me is the best. Um, yeah, then then we can circle back to to your pick from All the President's Men. I went with Taxi Driver because I think that sequence—we talked about De Niro's performance, perhaps the defining element of the movie. I think that's perhaps the defining performative scene, and I think it's because it's the culmination of Travis's psychology. Uh, just this idea of these imagined adversaries, and that's why he needs the mirror, right? That Because he needs to create— these people who are against him in his mind and and the line that follows it up i'm the only one here that is also just not not so like frightening and arresting as a piece of performance but thematically and character and psychology speaks to his loneliness as well so so it's it's a scene that has become iconic in the public consciousness but also is uh, so deeply connected to what the movie is about mm-hmm. and employs the movie's greatest tool which is denaro
1: well-argued And obviously an iconic scene and a great scene. So all the president's men maybe doesn't have as clear an iconic choice as Taxi Driver or as Network or maybe even Rocky. It was a tough one for me. What did you consider the standout?
0: Interestingly, I went with one that's more visual than verbal uh, compared to Taxi Driver. And for me, you could pick any of the meetings with Deep Throat in the parking garage. But I'm going to say the last one. Where Hal Holbrook shifts from being the guy behind the scenes who has the information, who's doling it out bit by bit, to actually looking scared.
1: Yeah. The letter, the, the letter that destroyed the Muskie candidacy, the canoe Did that come from inside the way? You're missing the overall. But what overall? They were frightened of Muskie, and look who got
0: destroyed. They wanted to run against McGovern. Look who they're running against. They bugged, they followed people. False press leaks,
1: fake letters. They canceled democratic campaign rallies. They investigated
0: democratic private lives. They planted spies, stole documents, and on and on. Now, don't tell me you think this is all the work of little Don
1: credit. The FBI and Justice know this.
0: The paranoia is overwhelming. Yes. And that is where it connects with Gordon Willis's cinematography. That is where we get a full sense of the evil at work here. Um, Again, because of the lighting, because of the the setting. And I just think of the Deep Throat scenes first when I think of All the President's Men, particularly that last one. But there are other options. Curious to hear if you went somewhere else.
1: Yes, certainly other options. But I think if you were going off of memorable lines from the film follow the money probably does come to mind first for most people. And I think I should know this as much as I love all the president's men. I think that's the one where he says it. Maybe he says it earlier, but I feel like he reinforces that idea in that scene, specifically the one you're speaking to when they're both completely overwhelmed by fear and paranoia, because Redford is basically lost and he's demanding answers and he's trying to remind him what will kind of lead him to the promised land. That line or one of those moments with Hal Holbrook, I totally understand choosing. And yet for me, the choice is the scene that I spent the most time talking about back when we discussed all the president's men at the start of the marathon. And the line would be, I know I shouldn't be telling you this.
0: Oh, <laughs> the and moment when Redford lights up and it's like, this is what I've been waiting for. Oh,
1: when Dahlberg on the other end of the phone says, I know I shouldn't be telling you this. And Redford just does that kind of the the sigh and his eyes close for a second. and He just kind of mutters to himself, please, please, please. Like the line, every journalist, every investigative journalist just longs to hear. Well, the moment after it is what they long to hear when then they actually do divulge it. And Dahlberg does divulge it. And it is the linchpin of the movie. And Willis and Pakula put so much effort behind it and treat it in such a grandiose way. And yet it's so subtle. You have to pay attention to the split diopter that's being used to emphasize the foreground and the background in focus. All the commotion in the back that seems like the news that's actually way more important. The kind of day-to-day scandal side of a presidential race. Meanwhile, the thing that's actually going to undo a presidency is happening in that moment on the phone when Dahlberg actually divulges what he does. Because it's the moment where they actually tie it back to the White House. They've been floundering and now they know they actually have a story and that concentration of the camera but with that attention to what's happening in the background so you never forget it, the noise kind of distracts you except you're so focused on the concentration level of Redford in that scene and those reactions to what he's saying, the performance Redford gives in that scene, the way Willis just slightly moves in to heighten the intensity. It's really, like I said, it's subtle and yet it's so chosen. Every choice that happens, every movement of the camera, every small part of Redford's performance. It's, it's just so fun to watch and so intense. I called it during our review, one of the most effective, modest long takes in cinema because that's what it is, but it barely registers as a long take because of all that activity, because of the way you kind of, Shift your attention between what's happening, as I said, in the foreground and the background, and also as you're amused at some of these moments and some of those reactions and some of the line readings, but you're also aware of the consequences of everything that's being revealed in the moment. That scene, again, is the scene where everything shifts for these reporters, and that's why Pakula gives it the weight it deserves.
0: Yeah, and it works on that level of pure entertainment for maybe the casual viewer who's enjoying this as a movie about clues and a mystery. Um, Mm -hmm. But as you said, for the journalism geeks who have been appreciating the level of detail in this movie, it also kind of winks at you and acknowledges how huge that little phrase that he hears over the phone is.
1: Yeah, that brings us to our final category, our final seven from 76 award. And it's going to take the form of our top five films, a quick top five, what we think are the five best films of 1976. And we'll see whether or not we're going to bring in any outside candidates or were these seven titles enough for us to choose from and pick out five great ones. Josh, give us your list. Start, start at number five and work your way down.
0: You want to go that way or you want you want to name our best pictures and then see where things shake out? Well, I could
1: do either one. I guess it depends on whether or not, like me, your best picture is, in fact, from this list. I think if that's the case, we should we should work up to. The number okay. one work up to the best picture.
0: Yeah, I actually I didn't know that this would be the case until I sat down and put it together. But all five of the films I have here were from our series. So okay. So yeah, I'll start. I'll start with number five then, and it's Harlan County, USA. I said it was clearly this landmark in advocacy filmmaking, but it was also fascinating to see how it had this unique combination of direct cinema and immersive impressionistic documentary technique. So it really was, it's really its own thing. And then you add that musical element that we've talked about already. So uh, number five is Harlan County, USA. Number four, I put Car Wash at number four. You spoke to it, Adam, being Hmm. this surprise. And what I really liked about it is that this too was the 1970s. I've had, even from the movies that I've seen, a picture of the 1970s, an understanding of the 1970s that didn't, make space for soul funk music, didn't make space maybe for the working class or minority voices. And seeing all of that done here, not just that it was present here, but in a movie that had that level of um, dignity to it, a clown show with dignity. (laughs) We spent so much time talking about dignity in our conversation. That was such a welcome surprise. And the music was just so great in it that uh, Car Wash made it on my list at number four. I've got All the President's Men. At three, and I will say, here's where there's another tier. Okay, this is where it got really tough. So if my top five is is in two tiers, Harlan mm-hmm. County, Car Wash, five, four, that's one tier. And then, man, were these three tough. All the President's Men. Number three, quote-unquote important, uh, but more than that. You just articulated so many reasons why this movie was almost perfectly crafted. Mm-hmm. And that just stands out every time you see it. My number two, Taxi Driver. I can't believe I'm saying Taxi Driver is number two. Wow. Spent a lot of time. I mean, it's weird because I think it's won a couple of the awards from me, right? Quintessential early Scorsese, The Birth of De Niro. My number one, though, a surprise to me. <laughs> a surprise to it everyone. It Rocky. I've come around. I watched it again. And, uh-huh. you know, oh, Stallone, he's just, he's, yeah. cap, he's captive. No, it's not Rocky. Um, news from Home. News from wow. Home is my number one film from 76. And here's why. May seem strange, hasn't come up much in these categories, but I kind of like the way it blows up all these categories that we've been discussing. I like the way it isn't even interested in being a movie that employs them. It's just this audacious reinvention of what a movie can be, the actual form it can take. And it's incredible. Think about how Jean Dielman, I could say the same things of Jean Dielman, but it was it did those things in a totally different way. So here are two movies from Chantal Ackerman we've seen that kind of reinvent cinema In completely different ways. And just this idea of framing her own story after leaving Brussels, going to New York City, not giving a diary or a travelogue, just giving us these scenes, extended, mostly static shots of New York City street scenes... While she reads the texts of these letters that she received from her mother, as you said, Adam, we didn't do a favorite scene category, and obviously nothing in News From Home is going to qualify as iconic, right? Because Ackerman just hasn't had that sort of cultural impact. But if I did a favorite scene, it might have been the one I talked about, the real-time fixed shot inside the subway car Mm -hmm. passing from station to station. The reflection of that ghost passenger kind of appears and disappears according to the light. Something like that isn't everybody's speed, literally, but I... I found it to be just as bold and as enthralling as some of the other really great films that we discussed. I mean, this was incredibly tough, but I do think after only seeing two of her films, fair to say Ackerman deserves to be mentioned along Scorsese, Coppola, Altman, these 70s greats that we talk about. So I'm going to back up that claim by, by going with news from home okay. as my favorite movie of 76. A bold choice, an unconventional choice.
1: I am not that bold or unconventional, sadly. And I love News From Home. It's outside my top five. That's just how good this series was and how good 1976 was as a movie year. My number five is a movie that I'm not going to give just lip service to here. I don't think it's ever been discussed on the show. I'm not sure it's ever even made a top five. And we will need to remedy that someday. And I will save my thoughts for then. It's The Outlaw, Josie Wales. Mm. That's my number five film of 76. Which I haven't seen. So Okay, there you go. It will be a blind cow, as we like to call it here on the show sometimes. Number four, Harlan County. This is where we start to overlap just different order, Josh. Taxi Driver 3, Network 2. And this is how I would have ranked them. This top four would have been the same even before the series. Okay. Unfortunately, nothing dramatically shifted. Taxi Driver to Network to All the President's Men. That is my favorite movie of 76. It is one of those movies, as I've said before, I just love deep in my bones. And again, totally separate from nostalgia because I didn't see it until I was 18, 19, 20, kind of just becoming a cinephile. And the beauty of it for me is that, as you know, because I mentioned this when we talked about it several months ago, I watched it with the whole family. One of the rare movies where the entire family could watch it and enjoy it. And I say that because Sarah is tough to please. She wants movies that aren't going to be overly violent or overly depressing. And she likes all the president's men. So Sarah's in. And then I've got two sons who are history nuts and presidential politics nuts. I've got Sophie, the budding cinephile. You've got Connor, the 10 year old who just wants to be where the rest of the family is, but everybody else is geared up and excited to watch this movie. And We all had a great time with it. And I'll illustrate that with this story. About a month ago, we were out at a restaurant. And actually, if people follow me on Twitter, they may remember me tweeting about this because this is how the conversation started. Holden and Sophie were at the other end of the table. And I think my son Quinn said something about Mount Rushmore. And Sophie tried to make a joke. What are you talking about Wes Anderson's best film? And Holden said... No, because he didn't say anything about the Royal Tenenbaums. So I tweeted about that because I loved that my son Holden, who is not the budding cinephile and who isn't as pretentious about movies as Sophie or myself, he was there agreeing with me that the Royal Tenenbaums is actually Wes Anderson's greatest film. But it's what happened next that (laughs) really was awesome. They were trying to then come to terms on what they could agree with about a great movie. And Holden goes... Well, then what's the perfect movie? Just, just name a perfect movie and we'll do it together. And so if he's like, okay, yeah, on the count of three and I'm over at the other end of the table, just building all this, you know, suspense, I don't know what they're going to say. And they go three, two, one. And in unison, they say all the president's men, (laughs) they both think of it as a perfect movie. Just like I do kids. They're silly sometimes, but sometimes they're right, Josh, and they're smart. They know what they're talking about with this film. It's, it's a masterpiece. I'll never not want to watch All the President's Men. They're smart when they agree
0: with their dad. That's what you're saying, right? Well said. <laughs> no, no. Well no, said, I think Josh. They're onto something. Um, I think, you know, they're, they're recognizing that uh, near perfection of craft that, yep. that I was talking about. So All the President's Men, the rare movie that can bring a whole family together. I like it. And it is my best picture of 1976. Alas, it did not win.
1: Josh, because you know that Rocky won, didn't get your prize, but it did get the Academy's prize. And that's maybe all we need to say about that.
0: Oh, Rocky didn't make my top 10 of 76 either. Adam, you'll be shocked. If you would like to
1: check out past reviews and many of the comments that we referenced during these awards, you can go to filmspotting.net slash seven from 76. Also, if you go to our episodes page, you can find the past series that we devoted to eight from 84 and nine from 99. I teased it earlier. I'm going to throw it out there because then if I do this, listeners who are smarter than the both of us will write in and tell me why I am right or tell me why I am wrong and they'll have great counter suggestions. I am envisioning potentially, Josh, seven from 67 Mm. next or six from 67, but there's certainly seven movies to talk about. One of the years that that changed movies forever. The only downside to that is we did do pre-Josh Larson, a new Hollywood marathon on film spotting about a decade ago, maybe a little more. And we talked about some of those films, but that doesn't mean I am against revisiting them. Of course, I'm thinking of yeah, give me some like titles, Bonnie and Clyde. Okay. Like in the heat of the night, mm. like the graduate, like easy writer. Those would be some of the 67 options. And then there's 62. A book just came out this past year about how great the year 1962 was. I don't have the titles handy, but trust me, if you Google it, Josh, I think you'll agree it needs to be in competition. And I think there's a sneaky case that could be made for the year 1960 as well. 62, I'm going to say Lawrence of Arabia. I'm going to say the Manchurian candidate. Yep. Those are two that come to mind. Yeah,
0: Lawrence of Arabia. You've got, uh, well, <laughs> you've got Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Um, mm-hmm. That would be uh, something to watch. And yeah, I'm just um, scrolling through here to see what else pops up. To Kill a Mockingbird. Okay. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. we've already we've been the West, done that. How the West Was Won. Cape Fear, original Cape Fear. The original, yeah. Interesting. All right. Yeah, I mean... I'm pretty much up for anything. The um, the 67 options sound good too. In the heat of the night, never like really seen as you know a grown up adult paying attention. So good. So oh, so that would be good. Uh, and I love revisiting it. those other ones. Sounds good too. So yeah, we'll see what okay. listeners uh, provide as feedback as we kind of narrow this down. Yeah, we look forward to that
1: next series. We hope you do as well. And that is our show.
0: If you want to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, Adam is at FilmSpotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over in the show archives at FilmSpotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. You can also vote in the Film Spotting poll at the website. We're asking what ensemble car movie should reunite the original cast for a sequel. To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter.
1: Did Sam include one of the Herbie movies? They made sequels already, I guess.
0: I don't think that was an option, but... Yeah, probably yeah. not
1: an option. Alas. On digital, out this weekend, Fatherhood. That's Kevin Hart starring as a newly widowed dad directed by Paul White's Alfre Woodard stars. It's on Netflix. Luca on Disney And yes, recommended by... Both of us out in limited release is Rita Moreno, Just a Girl Who Decided to Go For It. That is a doc about the Oscar-winning legend. Siberia, one of my summer movie picks, oh, directed yeah. by Abel Ferrara, is out. It stars Willem Dafoe as, quote, a dead man who lives alone in a frozen tundra. What? End quote. I mean, what else says summer? We have one that literally says summer. It's called Summer of 85. The latest from France is Francois Ozan and the Sparks Brothers. Edgar Wright, his documentary about the eccentric UK band, but they're actually American. And yes, I definitely recommend the Sparks Brothers. Next week on the show, F9. That's all you're going to get. That's all you need. That's it. F9. Yep.
0: Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Disseau and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson.
1: And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.